I, I think in the next 20 years, what we're going to see is that technology is going to be used much more intentionally uh, for supporting learning rather than just scaling teaching by making lots of materials available. Right? Realizing these, uh, these, these needs and these desires that learners have that can support their motivation, that can support their engagement, uh, I think will make learning more efficient uh, going forward. Uh, and, and more effective uh, as well. So we can probably achieve uh, learning outcomes um, in a shorter amount of time, uh, but hopefully do so without increasing levels of stress. Hello, and welcome to Learning Machine, a podcast about education in the 21st century. Each week, we interview a researcher, practitioner, or policy expert as we look for answers to the big questions about the future of education. I'm Nathan Levin, here with my co-host, Sam Squalachi, and the voice you just heard was Dr. Rene Kazilchich, founder and director of the Future of Learning Lab at Cornell University. On today's episode, we will be asking the question, can technology give teachers superpowers? Technology has been used in education for centuries. But the advent of the internet and computers has brought with it a cornucopia of educational silver bullets, from massive open online curriculums or MOOCs to intelligent tutors. Educators have more and more powerful tools at their at their fingertips. But as they say, with great power comes great responsibility. Rene has spent his career examining the power and pitfalls of educational technology. Support and inspiration for Learning Machine comes from our listeners. If you've got a minute and want to let us know what you think of our work, visit our website at www.learningmachinepodcast.com. Thanks and enjoy the show. When we talk about educational technology, we are often talking about students using the tool to learn independently in the absence of a teacher. Some technology is even designed to deliberately act like an instructor, managing time for the student and directing them. Yet independent use of educational technology often falls flat without the support and guidance of a mentor or community. Even the best educational tools become boring if they're not implemented thoughtfully. Recently, I was reading an article on Nearpod, which is a tool for teachers to engage students in real time on a slideshow. And this tool has been widely acclaimed by teachers and students. But the article was quoting students who basically have said, this Nearpod thing is great, but now every teacher in every class every day is doing Nearpod, and we're sick of it. During my conversation with Renee, we talked a lot about the design and implementation of educational technology. First, we're going to hear Renee describe important considerations when designing educational technology, and then he reveals how he thinks technology can give teachers superpowers. Technology has uh, affordances that if used well, uh, they can really um, support learning. Uh, one of them is access. Technology is making education more accessible than it used to be. Um, so that's that's something that, that we're seeing that uh, the MOOC phenomenon has certainly shown in in, in higher education, um, but we're also seeing it in around the world, especially in, in countries uh, with, with fewer resources that are uh, less developed still. 
Um, the other affordance of, of education, of technology in education, is the, um, the, the quality of, of learning that it can provide. Uh, it, can, it can be more tailored to students. Uh, it can provide uh, better support to students if designed well and if deployed well. And that last part is, of course, the crux of the matter, uh, how, to, how to use it correctly, uh, how to design it to, to work for, for the learner's needs um, in, in any given environment. And so that's what um, arguably a lot of the research has been on over, over the last uh, decades uh, in educational technology, which is this question of how to make uh, learner-centered educational technologies that start off with what are the needs of the student, how do we design to meet those needs, and how do we embed the technology in the context for it to work well. Renee makes an extremely important distinction here between the design and deployment of educational technology and says that deployment is the crux of the issue when it comes to a successful implementation. This is a particularly salient point for teachers because for some technologists to come in and say, here's the system, now change your pedagogy to work within this system, completely devalues the expertise of teaching professionals. I followed up by asking Renee if technology should be designed with students, teachers, or content in mind first, and here's his response. Yeah, I think the all three are important. And I think designing just for one uh, will leave something on the table. I think you have to design at least for two of them. Um, uh, so if it's something that is more self-directed, then it's good to design for the student and for the content. If it's something that is used by teachers uh, in, in connection with students, uh, it certainly needs to be designed for, for teachers as well so that they understand what is going on. Uh, in, a, in a way, educational technology in classrooms really is a, is a superpower for, for teachers. Right? They, it, it can allow them to see what they couldn't see before, uh, different things than they see when they look at a classroom, uh, and it can help them provide more targeted feedback to students and group students in intelligent ways or help help students be able to advance um, on their own while supporting other students in the classroom. Right? Those are the, the ideals that uh, we have in mind and that some technologies are starting to, uh, to realize um, in that space. And so designing for teachers in mind, I think, is critical because they have to be on board with using it, they have to see the value that it provides in order to be using it um, effectively. This is the first time Renee mentioned this idea of educational technology as a superpower. The metaphor continued to come up because it reframes the way we see technology in the classroom. Instead of talking about instructional replacement or solutions to some sort of deficiency in instruction, we talked about educators as superheroes and technology as an augmentation of the skills that teachers already have. Yeah, it reminds me. It, sorry, it reminds me of um, of the old Superman movies when when he was able to look through walls and see what's behind. Right. Uh, I feel the same way when I give my students um, a, a pre-class assessment, just a quick formative check on what they've understood from the readings and the materials that I gave out the week prior. And I can go into the classroom knowing what students got, what they all understood and what they were struggling with, right? That is the kind of 
superpower that I'm talking about here, which is it allows you to see things that you couldn't see otherwise. You could glean them over time by asking a number of questions, but thanks to technology, it's possible to just walk in the classroom and know right where students are at and then start teaching uh, to address uh, any, any concerns that students have and, uh, and spend time where the time is needed. This all sounds great, but many teachers already have systems in place to implement formative assessments and meet students where they are. Adopting new practices can be scary, and it's not always clear that the new tools will be any better than the old ones. As Renee mentioned earlier, the implementation strategy is just as important as the tools themselves. Now that being said, the 2021 school year presented unique challenges and opportunities, and it forced many teachers to jump headfirst into new technological practices. I think one of the things that we've learned from uh, this last year, where people uh, went out and, and looked at lots of different educational technologies that could help them overcome the challenges that they were facing uh, teaching remotely, um, is that uh, there is no one-size-fits-all solution. Uh, people have a, a, a way of teaching, and, and they're looking for uh, technologies that, that complement it. And, uh, and I think we, we are finding that there's enough choice out there that, that people can find uh, good complements that, that enhance what, what they are looking to achieve. And I think as a result of that, we're seeing a lot of uh, instructors in higher education um, interested in uh, keeping around these this technologies that they've just discovered, perhaps, uh, or discovered new features of uh, and want to keep using. And I think the biggest uh, ad advantage of, of that change is that it made instructors think intentionally about the technologies that they use in order to enhance their teaching and think intentionally about also what they do during lecture time and what aspects of that are, are necessary uh, or most effective delivered in person. And, and what aspects could be moved onto uh, maybe a, a platform that provides a, a short video introduction to the topic. And so I don't, I don't think that there's just one killer app that, that is solving it, um, in, in part because uh, they speak to different needs. And, uh, using the affordances correctly, I think that's, you know, whatever works for a person, I think is the best choice for them. Of course, the real challenge isn't just finding the right tools for te each teacher. As mentioned before, the right tool is the one that suits that teacher, the students, the content, and the context. One way Renee researches this concept is by evaluating student persistence in online learning, measuring how many students fail to complete an online course and what factors influence them. The first factor he mentions is the challenge of self-regulation. The second barrier he mentions is identity threat and the reasons that students may or may not feel comfortable in a given learning environment. Yes, so we looked at, um, at MOOCs for, for many years uh, trying to understand what the reasons are that people drop out, uh, why people even in the first place come to enroll in the courses, uh, and what can be done to help them uh, succeed with their learning goals, with whatever they may be. Um, what we find is that, first of all, the, the number of motivations that people have for enrolling is much higher than in a formal environment, right? People come for, for various reasons from, of course, getting a certificate, but also to uh, reasons like socializing, 
meeting other people who are like-minded. Um, some people come uh, to uh, to learn English, even though it's a course that's not about learning English, so it might not be the best way to learn English, but still, other people come to just see what it's like uh, to take a course from a professor at a, at a uh, elite institution. So there's there's much variation in motivations, which explains to some extent also the variation in completion rates. Some people who do not complete never intended to complete. And uh, in fact, when you look at uh, completion through the lens of motivations and intentions that people have, uh, completion rates look a lot more like community college completion rates than they do uh, without considering people's intentions to begin with. Uh, the main reasons for why people don't make it all the way through, if that's their goal, um, is self-regulation. Uh, people have a hard time managing their time, planning in, in advance uh, to complete a course. And that's very understandable, right? Unlike in formal educational program where you might be living on campus and everybody around you is taking courses and everything is designed to help you finish, uh, these are people who have a whole other life going on around them and they're trying to fit it in, right? And so just like some people might not make it to the gym every uh, you know, certain number of days per week on the right time, people fall behind with, with online courses too. And so we've tested interventions that support uh, learners to um, plan, set goals, uh, and um, put, put in place... Uh, uh, helps that 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 prov that give them some scaffolding. So, for example, we did some work with planning prompts uh, that ask people to make concrete plans for when they will take what courses and on what what they will do and where they will do it. These are interventions that have been tested um, in in medical uh, scenarios for uh, getting vaccine shots, flu shots, for instance, uh, have been tested for getting people to go out and vote um, and not forget to vote. Uh, they, they work to some extent in online learning. The big difference being that uh, going to vote and getting the flu shot, uh, that's a one-time event. And so you can make a very concrete, simple plan for, for that event. Uh, whereas learning a course uh, for that, that goes on for 12 weeks, perhaps, uh, is a much more complex, continuous event. Right? And so planning for that well in advance is, is much harder. However, we find that in the short run, it does have uh, significant effects in helping people persist. The other barrier that we found is around psychological factors. And in particular, feelings of uh, not belonging in the course, feelings of uh, identity threat, worrying about um, others in the course, maybe thinking lesser of one, worrying about fitting into the course, which may be a a pretty elite course, right? It might be some uh, elite institution that offers the course and the person, their identity has never been associated with being part of such an institution or uh, being worthy of being in a course like that. And so then coming into that environment, albeit online, can be a threatening experience. And so we've been looking at ways of uh, reducing uh, aspects in the course and inserting aspects into the course that reduce uh, these kinds of threats and, and fears around belonging. Uh, we call this uh, psychologically inclusive design. That's this, uh, a strategy for uh, inserting and removing cues in the environment that can raise concerns about uh, belonging and identity. 
in, in online courses and, and other environments as well. What Renee is describing here is imposter syndrome. Students who don't feel like they belong or are not going to feel comfortable or confident enough to be successful learners. Renee and his team have actually been researching some potential interventions to reduce the impact of this societally driven imposter syndrome. Absolutely. And there are many places where hopefully what we learn from uh, testing interventions in online courses can also inform practice in in-person residential courses. Uh, for instance, we've been uh, studying the effects of diversity statements, so short statements that um, that assure students that uh, the environment is, is a safe one and inclusive one that communicate some of the values of the instructor and the instructional team uh, for supporting inclusion and diversity in the classroom, uh, how those affect students at uh, the stage of signing up for a course uh, in online courses. And we've started studying this also now in in in-person environments. Uh, right now, uh, the results suggest little effect of including these kinds of statements in the uh, course overview uh, of online courses before a, a learner decides to enroll in a course. Uh, whether or not that a statement like that is included even pretty visibly uh, doesn't seem to affect who enrolls in the course along a number of dimensions. However, we're, st we're still looking into other, other uh, ways of signaling inclusion and belonging in the course. One of which that we did find has a big effect and is, is not entirely new in the literature is uh, the identity of the instructor. So looking especially at uh, women enrolling in, in STEM courses, which uh, in, in online environments still shows a very large gap. Uh, we still see even, even in MOOCs that are completely free, completely introductory, uh, we still see a large gender gap in participation. And so there we found that uh, how many women enroll in, in STEM courses very much correlates with uh, how many female instructors are teaching the course. And that's in fact not only true in STEM courses, but we saw the same trend in non-STEM courses as well. So having more female instructors uh, appears to raise the, uh, the proportion of females enrolling in a course too. This last comment from Renee is fairly well known at this point, but it's rarely considered when designing educational technology. Students who have a teacher that looks, sounds, is similar to them are more likely to pursue that subject. For educational technology, that means videos should have diverse representation. Application problems need to represent diverse worldviews. Student projects should feature students' lived experiences and be relevant to the problems they see in their lives and their communities. Can technology give teachers superpowers? Today's episode indicates yes, but as with any superpower, whether you use it for good or evil is up to you. Our guest today was Dr. Rene Kazilchich. You can follow Rene on Twitter. His handle is at whynotyet, that's W-H-Y, N-O-T-Y-E-T, -E and see more of the research coming out of his lab, the Future of Learning Lab at Cornell. Similar research can also be found at the Learning at Scale Conference in partnership with the Association for Computer Machinery, or the ACM. You can check that out by googling 
learning at scale. This week, your homework is to sign up for a MOOC. There are tons of free ones out there, and who knows, you might discover a new passion, or you might just end up quitting after the first lecture. Either is totally okay, but you'll never know if you don't try. Send us a tweet or an email and let us know what you decided to learn. I'm Nathan Levin. And I'm Sam Squalachi. You can find us at www.learningmachinepodcast.com. Thanks for listening.